listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. Between 1951 and 1953, AFL and CIO unions conducted more than 1,200 raids on red locals, not always with the desired results. For example, CIO leaders read and race baited FTA's largest local, Local 22, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, so badly its members decertified, but it never joined another union. Union workers pay outpaced inflation, but their unions paid a price in democracy and activism. Employers insisted on elaborate grievance procedures, which had to be exhausted before the union authorized a strike. Wildcats continued, but were usually short and strictly local. Unions deferred to management on issues like work rules, output quotas, investment policies, They could only watch when companies like Alexander Smith Carpet left Yonkers, New York, for a right to work, Georgia. In 1949, Ford began moving production from its River Rouge plant from a 1941 peak of 83,000 employment fell to 65,000 by 1950 and went under 30,000 during the 1960s. Organized labor's cooperation with government was closer abroad. In 1954, a wave of strikes united fruit plantations in Honduras. As the army arrested strike leaders, operatives rushed in from the Inter-American Regional Organization of Workers. Started in 1951 by the ICFTU and funded by the U.S. government, they called off strikes and set up a company union. In Puerto Rico, labor activists established a new federation in 1947. The Confederación General de Trabajadores, CGT. When CGT unions refused to comply with Taft-Hartley, AFL and CIO affiliates sent in organizers. Labor activist Juan Suez Corrales, who was arrested in 1954 on Smith Act charges, wrote in 1955, the CIO and AFL have been imported into Puerto Rico to colonize the labor movement. Those organizations serve the purpose of the Puerto Rican government and American employers who come to Puerto Rico to pile up more wealth. AFL and CIO leaders might agree in principle, but Green and Marie did not trust one another and several attempts at mergers had failed. Rating between the federations was constant. One report counted 1,245 rating attempts 
affecting 350,000 union members. Both Green and Murray died unexpectedly in November 1952. Ruther took over the CIO after a fight. The AFL promoted George Meany, a one-time plumber's apprentice turned business agent who had climbed through the organization to become AFL secretary and treasurer in 1939, and who had boasted he had never gone on strike or walked on a picket line. In June 1953, Meany and Ruther called for a moratorium on raiding and formed a joint unity committee. The committee announced an agreement in February 1955, affiliates would keep their jurisdictions and stop raiding one another. The new federation would adopt CIO policies on racial discrimination and labor racketeering, and the AFL position on free unions. Meeting separately in New York in early December, each federation ratified the merger. The AFL with a dissent, the CIO with just three nays. They reconvened December 5th as the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, with 145 affiliated unions representing almost 16 million members, more than a third of the U.S. labor force outside of agriculture. Meany called for organizing the unorganized, repealing anti-labor legislation, and expanding government aid to education, housing, medical care, and social security. The AFL-CIO Executive Council set up a new political operation, the Committee on Political Education, better known as COPE, and developed a five-point labor platform, improve national defense, increase wages to strengthen the economy, guarantee civil rights, overhaul Taft-Hartley, and regulate pension and welfare plans. The 1956 Democratic platform covered most of these demands, and the council endorsed Democrat Adlai Stevens, almost unanimously. Cope worked on getting union members to register and vote. Eisenhower won re-election, but Democrats captured both houses of Congress with 175 successful labor-backed candidates. The AFL-CIO in 1956 membership of 16.5 million was its high point as a proportion of the labor force, nearly 24%. Membership stagnated for more than a decade. The Federation's failure to end racial discrimination did not help. During the unity debates, the CIO's Mike Quill tried to make AFL abolition of Jim Crow locals, a condition for merger and voted against the agreement. Women received even less attention. In 1961, Bessie Hillman declared, I have a great bone to pick with the organized labor movement. They are the greatest offenders as far as discrimination against women is concerned. Today's women in every walk of life have bigger positions than they have in organized labor. Labor racketeering was a constant threat. Some employers were glad to get sweetheart deals designed, as the ILGWA's Gus Taylor observed, to give the union leadership an income, to give the employer relief from a real union, and to give the workers nothing. Union welfare and pension funds 
opened new avenues for corruption. Senator John McClellan's Select Committee on Improper Activities in the Labor or Management Field began televised hearings in 1957. This revealed that Teamsters President Dave Beck was involved in rigged elections, extortion, and criminal associations. When the Teamsters National Convention replaced Beck with Jimmy Hoffa, already implicated in sweetheart deals and welfare fund frauds, the AFL-CIO expelled the union. Hoffa did not go easily. He made jurisdictional agreements with some AFL-CIO affiliates, raided others, and mounted an organizing drive in Puerto Rico. He explored joining the independent ILWU in a new transportation federation. He resisted a string of indictments with legal ploys. The Teamsters grew. The McClellan Committee also investigated hotel and restaurant workers, operating engineers, allied industrial workers, United Textile workers, laundry workers, and bakery and confectionery workers. The cleanup did not slow passage of a new federal labor bill in 1959, the Lundgren Griffin Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act, which imposed financial disclosure and fiduciary responsibility on pension and welfare administrators. The act included a Workers' Bill of Rights which detailed what a union owed its members, set standards for electing union officers and disciplining locals, and banned convicted felons and communists from union office for five years from their release from prison or separation from the party. In 1959, USWA started work on a new contract. The union argued that increased productivity and industry profits allowed raising wages to cover the high cost of living. Still, executives opposed any increase and demanded work rule changes to permit use of new technology. The still workers walked off the job in mid-July, and industries like auto, which bought still for their own use, began snowing or shutting down. In October, Eisenhower invoked Taft-Hartley and set up a board of inquiry. When the board failed to find a compromise, the Justice Department took out an injunction. The union went back to work and waited for the injunction to expire. After the Kaiser Company agreed to union terms on January 5, 1960, other steel companies accepted a deal with increased benefits, a deferred pay raise, and no change in work rules. USWA leaders thought it was the best contract ever. Many still workers disagreed. UAW members staged wildcat strikes over speed up in 1955, more in 1961, and even more in 1964. In 1966, the machinist shut down 60% of the country's air flights for five weeks in a wildcat over chain gang conditions. In 1967, over a thousand proposed contracts were rejected by membership votes. The AFL-CIO's political record in the 1950s had been mixed. The Federation supported and saw past improved Social Security benefits and coverage, a minimum wage increase, and raises for federal employees. Labor support was crucial to Democrat John Kennedy's very narrow win over Vice President Richard Nixon in 1960. The administration headed by Lyndon Johnson after Kennedy's assassination in 1963 
back several labor initiatives, expanded unemployment benefits, and let federal employees organize. Johnson supported the repeal of Taft-Hartley's Right to Work Section 14b. The Federation backed some important civil rights measures, including the 24th Amendment eliminating poll taxes in federal elections and the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. As Johnson developed his War on Poverty program with labor support, the AFL-CIO seemed to be the main U.S. institution regularly supporting a liberal social agenda. There were limits. Randolph started the Negro American Labor Council in 1960 to press for minority hiring on government building projects. After the council endorsed the NAACP's criticism of AFL-CIO racial practices, Meany had Randolph censured at the 1961 convention for being divisive. When Plummer's Local Number no. 2 members walked off a job at the New York City Finance Bronx Terminal Market to protest the hiring of one black and three Puerto Rican plumbers, Meany defended his old local. The Democrats provided other opportunities for labor-government cooperation. Meany had been critical of Eisenhower's disinclination for confrontation in the Suez and Hungarian crisis in 1956, and Fidel Castro's takeover in Cuba on January 1, 1959, confirmed his fears. Kitty's Labor Secretary, Arthur Goldberg, helped Meany set up the American Institute for Free Labor Development, also known as CHILD, and provided government funding. ORIT Director Serafino Remold headed the Director Institute businessmen with Latin American interests like David Rockefeller and United Fruit Chief J. Peter Gray sat on the, its board. In 1962, AIFLD operatives financed strikes in British Guiana, leading the British to depose popularly elected Prime Minister Chedi Jagan. In 1964, its Brazilian Institute for Democratic Action provided new leaders for the unions that had supported populist Joy Gallard, disposed in a U.S.-backed military coup. By 1965, all AIFLD operatives were CIO professionals. The African American Labor Institute, another AFL-CIO program, started in 1962. Black unemployment stood at 11% in 1962. The tightening job market helped maintain job discrimination, derailing attempts to place more women and minority workers in jobs still mainly reserved for white men. Technological innovations continued to sweep through industry. Containerization eliminated many jobs on the docks. Technical changes to trains reduced crew sizes, new printing technologies wiped out an entire craft. Fewer auto workers made more cars, fewer steel workers, more steel. In once bustling industrial cities like Camden, New Jersey, corporate flight to lower wage locations had begun to produce vast wastelands of crumbling factories, derelict homes, and churches. 
streets littered with trash and vacant lots stacked high with garbage and an omnipresent stench of social collapse. Year by year, the cost of empire mounted. The defense budget jumped from its 1950s level of 40 or so billion per year to 70 billion by 1967. Costs included lives as well as dollars. The peacetime draft tripled after 1965 as Johnson escalated U.S. intervention in Southeast Asia. More and more working-class conscripts and volunteers began coming home in body bags. The Cold War formula for social peace was more and more dysfunctional. The turmoil associated with the 1960s ran through more than one decade. Politically speaking, the 60s began in the mid-1950s and extended well into the 1970s. So much of the ferment centered on campuses, but insurgent movements and ideas also reverberated from rural communities to inner cities, from churches to the military, from factories to rock concerts, from local school boards to national political conventions. Some unions plunged into social activism, working with the community groups and even radical students, and despite opposition from most labor officials, the unrest spilled into the unions as well. To a large degree, then, 60s movements were workers' movements. More than two decades after canceling his 1941 march on Washington, A. Philip Randolph led a new march on Washington for jobs and freedom on August 28, 1963. Endorsed by every major civil rights organization and the AFL-CIO's industrial department sponsored by the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the United Auto Workers, and the Negro American Labor Council, this march turned out some 250,000 people, including many thousands of union members. The rally in Washington capped a spring and summer of mass demonstrations across the South with more than 20,000 arrests for protesting Jim Crow. Direct action protests had been mounting since the mid-1950s when black residents of Montgomery, Alabama desegregated the city's buses. Out of this came a call for a bus boycott on Monday, December 5th. The boycott was solid. That afternoon, its organizers formed the Montgomery Improvement Association, choosing young Baptist minister Martin Luther King Jr. to head the group and debated whether to extend the boycott. They demanded that boycott continue until black passengers could ride the buses on the same terms as whites. For more than a year, black workers throughout Montgomery walked for hours or carpooled to work. Some lost their jobs for taking part in the boycott, and boycott leaders were indicted. In November 1956, the Supreme Court ruled that the law segregating Montgomery buses was unconstitutional and the city received a cease and desist order on December 20th. The next day, Rosa Parks took a seat at the front of the bus. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, Please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. 
If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening. Thank you.